Chapter 16 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 16 A Start for South Africa The Black Week Volunteering the Langman Hospital, The Voyage, Bloemfontein, Sir Claude de Crespigny, The Epidemic, Advance to the Waterworks. From December 10th to 17th, 1899, was the Black Week for England. In that week, General Gaytaker lost a battle at Stormberg, Lord Methuen lost one at Margus Fontein, and General Buller lost one at Colenso. The three together would not have made more than a minor action in the great war to come, but at the time it seemed portentous. There were ominous stirrings on the continent also and rumours of a coalition. It was lucky for us that the German fleet was not yet in being and that our own was able to keep the ring, or we should soon have had some Lafayette in South Africa with perhaps a Yorktown to follow. However, it was bad enough as it was, but the nation, as usual, rose splendidly to the occasion, and everyone hastened to do what they could. Hence it was that I found myself early one morning at Hounslow, if I remember right, standing in a long queue of men who were waiting to enlist in the Middlesex Yeomanry. I had one or two friends in the regiment, and hence my choice. The colonel, a grizzled soldier, sat behind a deal table, in an orderly room, and dealt swiftly with the applicants. He had no idea who I was, but seeing a man of forty before him, he intimated that I surely did not intend to go into the ranks. I said that I was prepared to take a commission. He asked if I could ride and shoot. I said that I could do both in moderation. He asked if I had had military experience. I said that I had led an adventurous life and seen a little of military operations in the Sudan, which was stretching it about as far as it would go. Two white lies are permitted to a gentleman to screen a woman or to get into a fight when the fight is a rightful one, so I trust I may be forgiven. However, the colonel would only put me on his waiting list, took my name, still without recognising me, and passed on to the next case. I departed somewhat crestfallen and unsettled, not knowing whether I had heard the last of the matter or not. Almost immediately afterwards, however, I received an offer which took me out in a capacity which was less sporting, but probably in my case and at my age, a good deal more useful. This came from my friend John Langman, whose son Archie I had known well in Davos days. Langman was sending out a hospital of fifty beds at his own expense to Africa, and had already chosen his staff of surgeons, but not his personnel. Archie Langman was to go with the hospital as general manager. Langman's idea was that I should help him to choose the personnel, that I should be a supplementary medico, that I should exercise a general supervision over the whole in an unofficial capacity. To all this I agreed, and spent a week at his house at Stanhope Terrace, choosing from many candidates those who seemed the most likely. On the whole they proved to be a worthy choice. There were many things to be done, and in the middle of them I received a note reopening the question of the yeomanry but by this time I was entirely committed to the Langman Hospital. When we were complete, we were quite a good little unit, but our weakness was unfortunately at the head. 
Dr. O'Callaghan had been a personal friend of Langman's and had thus got the senior billet, but he was in truth an excellent gynaecologist, which is a branch of the profession for which there seemed to be no immediate demand. He was a man too who had led a sedentary life and was not adapted, with all the will in the world for the trying experience which lay before us. He realised this himself and returned to England after a short experience of South African conditions. We were compelled to have one military chief, as a bond with the war office, and this proved to be one Major Drury, a most amusing Irishman who might have come right out of Lever. To leave the service and to marry a rich widow with a cough was, he said, the height of his ambition. He was a very pleasant companion in civil life, but when it came to duties which needed tact and routine, he was rather too Celtic in his methods, and this led to friction and occasional rows in which I had to sustain the point of view of Mr. Langman. I have no doubt he thought me an insubordinate dog, and I thought him, well, he has passed away now, and I remember him best as a very amusing companion. Under O'Callaghan and Drury were two really splendid younger surgeons, Charles Gibbs and Charlieb, the latter the son of the well-known lady doctor. They were as good as they could be. Then we had our wardmasters, cooks, stewards, storekeepers, and finally some fifteen to twenty orderlies. Altogether we numbered just fifty men, and were splendidly fitted out by the generosity of Mr Langman. A month or two passed before we could get away, and I remember one amusing incident which occurred during that time. I had spent a good deal of thought over the problem how best to attack men who lay concealed behind cover. My conclusions were that it was useless to fire at them direct, since if they knew their business very little of them would be vulnerable. On the other hand, if one could turn a rifle into a portable howitzer and drop a bullet with any sort of rough general accuracy within a given area, then it seemed to me that life would hardly be possible within that area. If, for example, the position was 20,000 square yards in size and 20,000 rifles were dropping bullets upon it, each square yard would sooner or later be searched and your mark would be a whole prostrate or crouching body. What I was really evolving, though, I could not know it, was the machine-gun barrage of dropping or vertical fire as practised in the Great War. My principles were absolutely right and have not even yet received their full application. I wrote an article to the Times explaining my views, but so far as I know it had no results. Meanwhile I was practising how to turn a rifle into a howitzer. I fastened a large needle at the end of a thread to the back side. When the gun pointed straight up in the air, the needle swung down across the stock, and I marked the spot. Then the idea was to tilt the gun slowly forward, marking advances of 200, 400, and so on in the range so that you had a dial marked on the stock and could always, by letting the needle fall across the correct mark on the dial, drop the bullet within a certain distance. But the crux was to discover the exact ranges. To do this I went down to Frencham Pond, and, standing among the reeds and tilting the gun very slightly forward, I pulled the trigger. The bullet very nearly fell upon my own head. I could not locate it, but I heard quite a loud thud. But what amazed me, and still amazes me, was the time it took. I counted fifty seconds on my watch, between the discharge and the fall. I don't wonder if the reader is incredulous. I feel incredulous also. But such is the fact as I recorded it. My idea was to mark the bullet splashes on the calm water of the lake, 
but though I fired and fired at various angles, not a splash could I see. Finally, a little man who may have been an artist broke in upon my solitude. Do you want to know where those bullets are going? Yes, sir, I do. Then I can tell you, sir, for they have been dropping all around me. I felt that unless my howitzer was to claim its first victim on the spot, I had better stop. It was clear that the light bullet with so heavy a charge went so high into the atmosphere that one lost all command over it. Twice the weight and half the charge would have served my purpose better. Then came other calls, and I could never work it out. But I am very sure that with little care in detail I could have got a converging fire which would have cleared any copier in South Africa. As I was convinced that the idea was both practical and much needed, I communicated full particulars to the War Office. Here is the letter I had in reply. War Office, February 16, 1900. Sir, with reference to your letter concerning an appliance for adapting rifles to high-angle fire, I am directed by the Secretary of State for War to inform you that he will not trouble you in the matter. I am, sir, your obedient servant, signature illegible, Director General of Ordnance. Thus, whether my invention was nonsense or whether it was, as I believe, radical and epoch-making, I was given no chance to explain or to illustrate it. As I remarked in the Times, no wonder that we find the latest inventions in the hands of our enemies rather than ourselves if those who try to improve our weapons meet with such encouragement as I have done. Our traditions were carried on in the Great War, for Pomeroy, the inventor of the inflammable bullet, which brought down the Zeppelins, was about to return to New Zealand in despair. And it was, as I am assured, private and not official bullets, which first showed how valuable was his discovery, and forced a belated acceptance by the War Office. At last our time drew near. My wife had gone to Naples, where it was hoped that the warmer climate would complete her cure. My affairs were all settled up. I was to go as an unpaid man, and I contributed my butler, Cleve, a good intelligent man for the general use, paying him myself. In this way I retained my independence and could return when I felt that the time had come, which, as events turned out, proved to be very valuable to me. We were reviewed by the old Duke of Cambridge in some drill hall in London. There befell me on this occasion one of those quaint happenings which seemed to me to have been more common in my life than in that of most other men. We were drawn up in our new khaki uniforms and wearing our tropical helmets for the Royal Duke's inspection. If we had been asked to form fours, we should have broken down completely, but luckily we were placed in double line, and so we remained. I was standing in front, on the right flank. With my eyes fixed rigidly before me, I was still able, out of the corner of them, to be aware that the old Duke, with his suite, was coming across to begin at my end. Presently he halted in front of me and stood motionless. I remained quite rigid, looking past him. He continued to stand, so near me that I could hear and almost feel his puffy breath. What on earth, I wondered, but I gave no sign. At last he spoke. What is this? he asked. Then louder. What is this? And finally, in a sort of ecstasy, what is it? I never moved an eyelash, but one of a group of journalists upon my right, went into hysterical but subdued laughter. 
There was whispering among the sweet, something was explained, and the funny old man passed on. But did ever Lever in his maddest moment represent that his hero, on the first day of wearing uniform, should have such an experience with the ex-commander-in-chief of the British Army and the uncle of the Queen? It seems that what was worrying the dear old gentleman, he was about eighty at the time, was that my tunic buttons had no mark upon them, a thing which he had never seen in Her Majesty's Army. Even a crown or a star would do, but no mark at all completely upset him, for he was a great stickler for correct military clothing. So, of course, was King Edward. A friend of mine at a ball in India, royalty being present, was swooped down upon by a very agitated aide-de-camp who began, His Royal Highness desires me to say, and went on to point out some defect in his dress kit. My friend answered, I will mention the matter to my tailor, which was, I think, an admirable way of quietly putting the matter into its true perspective. On this occasion we officers all filed up to be presented, and the old duke made amends by blurting out some very kindly things, for it seems that he greatly approved of my wooden soldier attitude, in spite of my reprehensible buttons. He had a day of agitations, for on the top of the buttons one of the curtains of the hotel took fire during our luncheon at Claridge's, and there was a great excitement for a few moments. He made, I remember, an extremely indiscreet speech in which he said, they turned me off because they said I was too old, but old as I am, I wouldn't have been such a fool as to. And then he strung off a number of things which Lord Wolseley, his successor, was supposed to have done. The press was merciful and did not report. We sailed on February 28, 1900, from Tilbury, in the chartered transport Oriental, carrying with us a mixed lot of drafts and picking up the Royal Scots Militia at Queenstown, where a noisy Irish woman threw a white towel on board, crying, You may be after finding it useful. The Scots were a rather rough crowd with a number of territorial magnates. Lord Henry Scott, Lord Tewkesbury, Lord Newport, Lord Brackley, and others among their officers. Colonel Garstin of the Middlesex was in general command of the whole of us. The monotony of the three weeks' voyage was broken only by a cricket match at the Cape de Verdes, by a lecture on the war, which I delivered on deck under a tropical moon to all hands, and to an enteric inoculation, which was voluntary, but should have been compulsory, for even as it was, it saved many lives, and I am not sure that my own was not among them. The Great War has shown forever how effective this treatment is. We lost more from enteric than from the bullet in South Africa, and it is sad to think that nearly all could have been saved had Armroth Wright's discovery been properly appreciated. His brother was on board, I remember, an officer of sappers, and took the virus particularly badly, though all of us were quite bad enough, for the right dose had not yet been accurately determined. On the evening of March 21st we reached Cape Town and found the bay full of shipping. There were fifty large steamers at anchor, mostly empty, some of us had a run ashore, but we had some trouble getting on board again, for there was a big swell, and the little tug dare not come quite alongside. We had to jump, therefore, from the paddle-box as the roll favoured us, landing on a hanging ladder, where a quartermaster seized us. To some people such a feat is easy, while others evidently regarded it with horror, and I wondered that we escaped from having some tragedy. 
The only real mishap was a strange one. A row of soldier faces was looking down on us over the bulwarks, when I saw the grin upon one of them change to a look of horrible agony, and he gave a wild scream. He still remained standing, but several men ran towards him, and then he disappeared. Only afterwards did I learn that a huge iron bar had in some way fallen upon his foot, pinning him to the place. He fainted as they disengaged him, and was carried below with his bones crushed. I spent next day ashore with the Mount Nelson Hotel as my headquarters. It was full of a strange medley of wounded officers, adventuresses, and cosmopolitans. Kitchener came down and cleared it out shortly afterwards, for the sirens were interfering with his fighting men. The general war news was very good. Paderberg had been fought, Lord Roberts had made his way to Bloemfontein, and Kimberley had been relieved by French, whose immediate return to head off Cronier was one of the inspired incidents of the war. It was a consolation to find that Boers really could be captured in large numbers, for their long run of successes, while the conditions were in their favour, was getting badly upon the public nerves, and a legendary sort of atmosphere was beginning to build up around them. Some money had been given me for charitable purposes when I was in London, so I went down to the camp of the Boer prisoners to see if I could spend some of it. It was a racecourse pent in with barbed wire, and they were certainly a shaggy, dirty, unkempt crowd, but with the bearing of free men. There were a few cruel or brutal faces, some of them half-caste, but most were good, honest fellows, and the general effect was formidable. There were some who were maimed like lions. I afterwards went into the tents of the sick boars. Several were sitting suddenly around, and one was raving in delirium, saying something in his frenzy, which set all the others laughing in a mirthless way. One man sat in a corner with a proud dark face and brooding eagle eyes. He bowed with grave courtesy when I put down some money for cigarettes. A Huguenot, or I am mistaken. We had been waiting for orders, and now we suddenly left Cape Town on March the 26th, reaching East London on the 28th. There we disembarked, and I was surprised to find Leo Trevor, of amateur theatrical fame, acting as transport officer. In spite of his efforts, I hope it was not through them, our hospital stuff was divided between two trains, and when we reached Bloemfontein after days of travel, we found that the other half had wandered off and was engulfed in the general chaos. There were nights of that journey which I shall never forget, the great train roaring through the darkness, the fires beside the line, the dark groups silhouetted against the flames, the shouts of, Who are you? and the crash of voices as our mates cried back, The Camerons! for this famous regiment was our companion. Wonderful is the atmosphere of war. When the millennium comes, the world will gain much, but it will lose its greatest thrill. It is a strange wild place, the Veldt, with its vast green plains and peculiar flat-topped hills, relics of some extraordinary geological episode. It is poor pasture, a sheep to two acres, so it must always be sparsely inhabited. Little white farms, each with its eucalyptus grove and its dam, were scattered over it. When we crossed the Free State border by a makeshift bridge beside the ruins of the old one, we noticed that many of these little houses were flying the white flag. Everyone seemed very good-humoured, burghers and soldiers alike, but the guerrilla war afterwards altered all that. It was April 2nd and 5am when we at last reached the capital of the Free State, 
and were dumped down outside the town in a great green expanse, covered with all sorts of encampments and animals. There was said to be a large force of boars close to the town, and they had cut up one of our columns a few days before at Sanna's post. Some troops were moving out, so I, with Gwyn, whom I had known in Egypt, and that great sportsman, Claude de Crespigny, set forth to see what we could, an artilleryman lending me his led horse. There was nothing doing, however, for it was Brother Boer's way, never to come when you wanted him, and always when you didn't. Save for good company, I got nothing out of a long hot day. Good company is always one of the solaces of a campaign. I ran across many old friends, some soldiers, some medicos, some journalists. Knight of the Falcon had, alas, been hit in an early battle and was in hospital. Julian Ralph, a veteran American correspondent. Bennett Burley, the rugged old warhorse. Queer little Melton Pryor, who looked like the prim headmaster of a conventional school. Dark-eyed Donahue of the Chronicle. Patterson, the Australian, of Snowy River fame. They were a wonderful set of men. I had little time to enjoy their society, however, for among the miles of loaded trucks, which lay at the endless sidings, I had to my great joy discovered the missing half of our equipment, and guided a fatigue party down to it. All day we laboured, and before evening our beds were up, and our hospital ready for duty. Two days later wagons of sick and wounded began to disgorge at our doors, and the real work had begun. We had been given the cricket field as our camp, and the fine pavilion as our chief ward. Others were soon erected, for we had plenty of tents, one each for our own use, and a marquee for the mess. We were ready for any moderate strain, but that which was put upon us was altogether beyond our strength, and for a month we had a rather awful time. The first intimation of trouble came to me in a simple and dramatic way. We had a bath in the pavilion, and I had gone up to it and turned the tap but not a drop of water appeared, though it had been running freely the night before. This small incident was the first intimation that the Boers had cut the water supply of the town, which caused us to fall back upon the old wells, which in turn gave rise to an outbreak of enteric, which cost us five thousand lives. The one great blot in Lord Robert's otherwise splendid handling of the campaign was, in my opinion, that he did not buzz out at once with every man he could raise and relieve the waterworks, which were only twenty miles away. Instead of this, he waited for his army to recuperate and so exposed them to the epidemic. However, it is always easy to be wise after the event. The outbreak was a terrible one. It was softened down for public consumption and the press messages were heavily censored, but we lived in the midst of death and death in its vilest, filthiest form. Our accommodation was for fifty patients, but a hundred and twenty were precipitated upon us, and the floor was littered between the beds with sick and often dying men. Our linen and utensils were never calculated for such a number, and as the nature of the disease causes constant pollution, and this pollution of the most dangerous character and with the vilest effluvia, one can imagine how dreadful was the situation. The worst surgical ward after a battle would be a clean place compared to that pavilion. At one end was a stage with the scene set for HMS Pinafore. This was turned into latrines for those who could stagger so far. 
The rest did the best they could, and we did the best we could in turn. But a Verest Shagin would have found a subject in that awful ward, with the rows of emaciated men and the silly childish stage looking down upon it all. In the very worst of it, two nursing sisters appeared among us, and never shall I forget what angels of light they appeared, or how they nursed those poor boys, swaddling them like babies and meeting every want with gentle courage. Thank God they both came through safe. Four weeks may seem a short time in comfort, but it is a very long one, under conditions such as those, amid horrible sights and sounds and smells, while a haze of flies spread over everything, covering your food and trying to force themselves into your mouth, every one of them a focus of disease. It was bad enough when we had a full staff, but soon the men began to wilt under the strain. They were nearly all from the Lancashire cotton mills, little ill-nourished fellows, but with a great spirit. Of the fifteen, twelve contracted the disease and added to the labours of the survivors. Three died. Fortunately, we of the staff were able to keep going, and we were reinforced by a Dr. Schwartz of Cape Town. The pressure was great, but we were helped by the thought that the greater the work, the more we proved the necessity of our presence in Africa. Above all, our labours were lightened by the splendid stuff that we had for patients. It was really glorious to see the steady patience with which they bore their sufferings. The British soldier may grouse in days of peace, but I never heard a murmur when he was faced with this loathsome death. Our hospital was no worse off than the others, and as there were many of them, the general condition of the town was very bad. Coffins were out of the question, and the men were lowered in their brown blankets into shallow graves at the average rate of sixty a day. A sickening smell came from the stricken town. Once when I had ridden out to get an hour or two of change, and was at least six miles from the town, the wind changed and the smell was all around me. You could smell Bloemfontein long before you could see it. Even now if I felt that low deathly smell, compounded of disease and disinfectants, my heart would sink within me. At last there came the turn. The army had moved on. Hospitals up the line absorbed some of the cases. Above all, the waterworks had been retaken, and with hardly any resistance. I went out with the force which was to retake it, and slept for the night in a thin coat under a wagon, an experience which left me colder than I can ever remember being in my life, a cold which was not only on the surface, but like some solid thing within you. Next morning there was every prospect of a battle, for we had been shelled the night before and it looked as if the position would be held. So Ian Hamilton, who commanded, made a careful advance. However, there was no resistance, and save for some figures watching us from distant hills, there was no sign of the enemy. He had slipped away in the night. In the advance, we passed over the drift at Sanna's post, where the disaster had occurred some weeks before. The poor artillery horses were still lying in heaps where they had been shot down, and the place was covered with every kind of litter, putties, cholera belts, haversacks and broken helmets. There were great numbers of Boer cartridge papers which were all marked split bullets manufactured for the use of the British government, London. What the meaning of this was, or where they came from, I cannot imagine, for certainly our fellows had always the solid Lee Metford bullet, 
as I can swear after inspecting many a belt. It sounded like some ingenious trick to excuse atrocities, and yet on the whole the Boer was a fair and good-humoured fighter until near the close of the war. The move of Hamilton's was really the beginning of the great advance, and having cleared the waterworks, he turned north and became the right wing of the army. On his left was Tucker's 7th Division, then Kelly Kenny's 6th Division, Pole Carew's 1st Division, including the Guards, and finally a great horde of mounted infantry, including the Yeomanry, the Colonial, and the Irregular Corps. This was the great line which set forth early in May to sweep up from Bloemfontein to Pretoria. Things had become more quiet at the hospital, and presently Archie Langman and I found a chance to get away and to join the army at the first stage of its advance. I wrote our experience out while it was still fresh in my mind, and the reader will forgive me if I reproduce some of this, as it is likely to be more vivid and more detailed than the blurred impression now left in my memory after more than twenty years. End of chapter 16